We are the recipients of gifts from the earth. The earth gives us the air that we need to breathe. The earth gives us water, water to drink, water to irrigate, water to wash ourselves. The earth gives us soil where we grow our food and where our trees grow that give us clean air and shade from the hot sun. These are precious gifts that we often take for granted. We also give back to the earth, but our gifts are not the kind the earth wants. We pollute the air with noxious chemicals. We pollute the water with plastic, garbage, animal waste, and more chemicals. And we pollute the soil with lead and arsenic, chemical pesticides, and synthetic fertilizers. This is how we thank the earth for the gifts we receive. And this, is the Earth Day edition of Green Street. everyone and welcome to our Earth Day special here on Green Street. Patty and Doug Wood and our network of scientists, researchers, medical and public health professionals, authors, activists and other accomplished and interesting people all here on Tuesday mornings to help you understand exactly what is happening and how you and your family can live a better, safer and healthier life here on this planet which faces so many challenges on this upcoming 51st Earth Day. Restore Our Earth is the official motto of this Earth Day, and that's an important thing to think about. A lot of people have bought into the idea that we always have to move forward, never back. We have to continue to build, to experiment, to find new ways of doing things and new ways of making things. Everything has to be new. New is good, old is bad. That's exactly the kind of thinking we need to move away from. Because what does restore really mean? It means to return to bring back into existence, to put back into a former or original state. So to restore the earth, we're going to need to look carefully at our society and the way we do things and understand that some of the old ways we used to do things were actually much better than the new ways. We need to restore those ways that worked so well. I'll give you an example. 100 years ago, we maintained our public parks and gardens using tools that nature provided. We planted plants that naturally resisted pests of all kinds. We encouraged beneficial insects to control harmful insects. We used horticultural methods that gardeners have known and practiced for generations. And we produced magnificent gardens and created some of the most beautiful places in the world. And then, about 75 years ago, chemical companies came along with products to sell and convinced many gardeners that the old ways of doing things weren't good enough and we could do much better than nature if we just used their product X. And with advertising and promotion, people started to use product X and the company made money. And then, with more advertising, more and more people used product X until pretty much everyone was using it. People got lazy, they forgot the old methods, and the chemical company became rich and powerful and influential. But then scientists discovered that Chemical X was contaminating our soil, polluting our water, and causing people to develop serious illnesses like cancer, neurological problems, and birth defects. But by that point, the chemical company was so influential that they convinced the government to allow them to continue to sell product X anyway. 
Until one day, when a small group of people said, hang on a minute, we don't need to be using Product X. We had beautiful gardens and parks for years without Product X, and we can do it again. And they proposed a law to get rid of all the Product Xs that were polluting the soil and the water and making people sick. And this Thursday, the day after tomorrow in New York City, the City Council will pass a new law to help restore our Earth. The law will prohibit the use of any Product X in public parks in New York City. Congratulations are due to a smart and brave kindergarten teacher, Paula Rogovin, whose class first brought the issue to the City Council seven years ago. Councilman Ben Kalos, who took up the issue and got things started with legislation. Bertha Lewis, founder and president of the Black Institute, who commissioned a report showing that more toxic chemicals were used in parks in black and brown neighborhoods than in white neighborhoods, and showed that this was not only a pollution issue, but an environmental justice issue. Jay Feldman of the nonprofit group Beyond Pesticides, who brought his knowledge and experience to meetings and hearings. Dr. Ken Spaeth, who came and testified at a city council meeting about pesticides and public health, and who we'll be hearing from in just a few minutes. Speaker Corey Johnson, who's spearheading the passage of this legislation on Thursday, and our own Patty Wood, who convinced 34 members of the City Council to become co-sponsors of the legislation. Great teamwork and a great result for the people of New York. So this is how we begin to restore the earth. We're going back to the ideas that worked well for centuries before the chemical companies tried to convince us that they could do better than nature. And hopefully it will inspire us to look at some of the other things we're doing, like our use of single-use plastic, and see if we can't figure out better ways to do those things, even if they're old ways. As I said, we're going to be speaking with public health expert Dr. Kenneth Spaeth about this new New York City law and environmental toxins in general. And that's coming up in a few minutes, right after Patty and the Green Street News. What do you got for us on this Earth Day special program? Okay, so this first one is really important. Um, it was published in the Washington Post, written by Antonia Farzan, and it is titled, How an Election in Greenland Could Affect China and the Rare Earth Minerals in Your Cell Phone. Sitting on vast untapped reserves of uranium and rare earth minerals, Greenland holds the keys to massive wealth. But many Greenlanders have grave doubts about whether they should allow the world to exploit those resources given the risk that mining could pose to the Arctic territory's fragile environment. The remote snow-covered island sent a clear message to global mining interests this week when voters handed a rare victory to the Democratic Socialist Party with a 34-year-old leader, Mute Adjeti, and an environmental bent. The party, whose name translates to Community of the People, had campaigned on halting what was on track to become a massive mining operation in southern Greenland, led by an Australian company and backed by Chinese investment. The people have spoken, said Mr. Ejeti, pledging that development of the mine would come to a stop. The election results are a blow to China, which mines more than 70 percent of the world's rare earth minerals and hopes to maintain its dominance as demand soars. Greenland Minerals, the company behind the mining project, says that the Greenland mine has the potential to become the most significant Western world producer of rare earths and could be a globally significant supplier of rare earths for many decades. Rare earth minerals are used to make high-tech devices, including cell phones, flat-screen monitors, electric cars, wind turbines, and weapons. Consequently, they have emerged as a key bargaining chip in U.S.-China trade wars, with Beijing threatening in 2019 to cut off exports and bring U.S. manufacturing to an abrupt halt. 
The mine, if plans proceed, will increase Greenland's carbon dioxide emissions by a projected 45 percent, according to the Wall Street Journal, a major concern in a part of the world that has already seen an unprecedented ice melt due to climate change. Additionally, uranium would be extracted as part of the mining process, leading to concerns about radioactive runoff and waste. We risk being left with a country that cannot be used for anything, where you cannot hunt or fish because it is all polluted, said Marianne Paviasen, who won a seat in Greenland's parliament. Supporters, including Greenland's long-dominant center-left Saimut party, argue that the mine could generate hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue and create hundreds of jobs, putting the territory in a better position to break away from Denmark. Currently, Greenland is considered a self-governing territory of the small Scandinavian nation, which it relies on for defense and a roughly $624 million annual subsidy that funds basic services. Polling indicates the majority of Greenland's 57,000 inhabitants hope to move toward independence. But some Greenlanders see allowing other nations to extract their valuable mineral resources as a new form of colonialism. The new mining operation was close to clearing its final regulatory hurdles earlier this year when disputes over whether it should go forward triggered the breakup of Greenland's government and prompted a snap election. Shutting down the mining operation could send a counterproductive message to the world and suggest that Greenland is hostile toward outside investors, warned Duane Menendez, the founder and managing director of the Polar Research and Policy Initiative. He also noted that the next challenge will be to make clear that Greenland is still open for business and still just as attractive and stable a jurisdiction for investment. The prospect of allowing in foreign mining companies, which would reduce the need to rely on subsidies from, subsidies from Denmark, has been a divisive issue in Greenland for years. In 2013, when Greenland's parliament overturned its ban on extracting radioactive materials such as uranium, the legislation passed by just one single vote. Ejeti now stands to become Greenland's youngest ever prime minister. His rapid ascension through the political ranks has been partially credited to his success at reaching voters through social media. In addition to Greenland potentially holding the largest reservoir of rare earth minerals outside China, its strategic position between the United States and Russia in the Arctic Circle means that it is increasingly in the sights of major world powers. In 2019, President Donald Trump pushed top aides to see whether it would be possible for the United States to purchase the territory from Denmark. It wasn't for sale. And while the United States has been building up its military arsenal at Thule Air Base, its outpost in northern Greenland, China has been pushing to establish its own presence. By voting against mineral interest, Greenlanders also send a message to the United States and European nations that see the island as a treasure trove of resources. That's great. You got to give it to the people of Greenland. You know, it's, wow, uh, it's really it, important. No, I, I think was, it was the it was the you know the under sixty year olds who were clearly who were sure. saying, "Wait a minute, wait a minute. Yeah. This is going to be our future here, yeah. and it looks like we're going to be controlled by these outside interests, these greedy outside interests well, who just want that, to exploit." You heard what that woman our said. Our, our country is going to be worth nothing. You're worth not going to be able nothing. to do anything here. It's going to be polluted, and yeah, and you know, you got to figure people that live in Greenland are not there to make a lot of money. That's so, right. That's right. So, you know, you finally have somebody standing up to the investors and the and the politicians who are paid by the investors and just saying, no, we're not going to do this. Yeah. It's great. No, it's I think great... it's great. I, but there's also that problem of them wanting their independence from from Denmark, you see, and this would give them the the, you know, the financial uh, power to basically become an independent 
totally independent um, island. I can certainly, you nation. know, I can certainly understand the argument, but you know, we'll give you money if you let us destroy your country. You know, I mean, yeah. I mean, what kind of a bargain is that? And that's that is the essential bargain of all and of this stuff. I was just going to say, all you just, of this you just, we'll you give just hit you the money. nail on the head. You can have it cheaper if you let us ruin, you know, the ocean. If you let us ru ruin this this bay, this river, right. this your land. cell phone's going to cost you, you know, two hundred and fifty dollars less if if yeah. if you let us ruin yeah. your resources yeah. and your country, your yeah. air, what your a, water. What a bargain! Wow. Okay, what else you got? Um, this was published in The Guardian, uh, written by Adrian Matei, and it is entitled, Rates of Parkinson's Disease Are Exploding. A Common Chemical May Be to Blame. Most cases of Parkinson's disease are considered idiopathic. They lack a clear cause. Yet researchers increasingly believe that one factor is environmental exposure to trichloroethylene, or TCE, a chemical compound used in industrial degreasing, dry cleaning, and household products such as shoe polish and carpet cleaners. To date, the clearest evidence around the risk of TCE to human health is derived from workers who are exposed to the chemical in the workplace. A 2011 study found a six-fold increase in the risk of developing Parkinson's in individuals exposed in the workplace to trichloroethylene. TCE is a carcinogen linked to renal cell carcinoma, cancers of the cervix, liver, biliary passages, lymphatic system, and male breast tissue, and fetal cardiac defects, among other effects. Its known relationship to Parkinson's may often be overlooked due to the fact that exposure to TCE can predate the disease's onset by decades. While some people exposed may sicken quickly, others may unknowingly work or live on contaminated sites for most of their lives before developing symptoms of Parkinson's. Those near Superfund sites, known to be contaminated with hazardous substances such as TCE, are at especially high risk of exposure. Santa Clara County, California, for example, is home not only to Silicon Valley, but 23 Superfund sites, the highest concentration in the country. Google Campus sits atop one such site. For several months in 2012 and 2013, the Environmental Protection Agency found employees of the company were inhaling unsafe levels of TCE in the form of toxic vapor rising up from the ground beneath the offices. While some countries heavily regulate TCE, the EPA estimates that 250 million pounds of the chemical are still used annually in the U.S., and that in 2017, more than 2 million pounds of it was released into the environment from industrial sites contaminating air, soil, and water. TCE is currently estimated to be present in 30% of U.S. groundwater. In severe cases of contamination, such as that which occurred at Camp Lejeune, a North Carolina Marine Corps between the 1950s and late 80s, people are believed to have been exposed to up to 3,400 times the level of contaminants permitted by safety standards. Using activated carbon filtration devices can help reduce TCE in drinking water, yet bathing in contaminated water, as well as inhaling vapors from toxic groundwater and soil can be far more difficult to avoid. Policy and effective government intervention are crucial when it comes to testing, monitoring, and remediating TCE-contaminated sites. It is also important to raise awareness of TCE's role in surging rates of Parkinson's. Minnesota became the first state to ban TCE. New York followed suit last December, as should more states, especially as federal action on the issue has lagged. 
it's well past time for the U.S. to stop using it and to better protect its citizens from hazardous chemicals that put lives at risk. I thought we were getting rid of TCE. I mean, we haven't banned it. I mean, the EU banned it unless you have special permission or authorization to use it for, you know, specific thing. It's like, you know, one of those things where you need to get a, what is it that we're talking about? You need to get a waiver. Exactly. But we don't put those regulations or those restrictions on our chemical industry here in the United States. Isn't it TCE that's contaminating the groundwater in Bethpage on Long Island? Oh, yeah. And here, right here in Port Washington from where we're recording. So we know it's a toxic chemical and we have to spend millions and millions of dollars cleaning it up, but we still use it. We still allow it. We're still poisoning our water with it and our air and our soil. Maybe Biden's uh, EPA will get on the stick and let's get rid of this I mean, it it, it really is one of those chemicals that we need to get rid of. I mean, trichloroethylene has just contaminated some. I mean, it's probably the most prominent chemical in U.S. Superfund sites. Yeah. Maybe for Earth Day next year, we could ban it. We'll try. All right. Okay. So uh, now why don't you read the article that you wrote for the paper this week about the Anthropocene? I bet a lot of people don't know what an Anthropocene is. I certainly didn't until this week. Perfect thing to read for Earth Day. What better time than Earth Day 21 to talk about something big that is happening to our Earth? The history of our planet, covering about 4.5 billion years, is described using geological time as epochs, eons, eras, and ages. For the last 11,700 years, Earth has been in the Holocene epoch, beginning at the end of the last ice age, when glaciers that had covered the Earth melted. Epochs can last for millions of years and are defined by changes in the mineral composition of rock layers and the presence of distinctive fossils. These markers reflect major climatic change. Over the past decade, experts in varying fields of science have begun to debate whether we are actually witnessing a new formal geological epoch, the Anthropocene. The term translates to age of humans, and there is mounting evidence that human activity, rather than natural progress, is changing our planet in ways that will continue far into the future through geologic time. Crucial signs of these changes includes our unstable climate and the Earth's warming, an increase in the release of greenhouse gases, deforestation, agricultural practices, widespread planetary pollution and urbanization, and many more human activities underlie these changes. But to actually document a shift in geologic time, there would have to be detectable markers in rock layers millions of years into the future. This is where the disagreement lies. Can humans, who have only been around for about 200,000 years, really impact the chemical composition of the fossils and rocks under our feet with their activities? Geologists are looking for proof of this marker, or the quote-unquote golden spike that would demarcate the Holocene from the Anthropocene. Golden Spike candidates range from Britain's Industrial Revolution in the 18th century and the nuclear weapon test by the U.S. in July of 46 to plastic pollution and mass extinction events. Until humans unleashed their destructive powers, mass extinction events were caused by natural causes like volcanic eruptions or asteroids hitting the planet. The International Commission of Stratigraphy, located in Cambridge, UK, is the global governing body that formally names geological errors associating sedimentary rock layers with a period of time. 
Geologists working in stratigraphy spend their time in laboratories, carefully studying cores of dirt or ice and even tree rings to understand the climate history of the Earth. In the year 2000, a Nobel Prize-winning chemist named Paul Crutzen made stratigraphy more familiar to the world. He said that human activities had altered the fundamental processes of the planet in such a significant way that a new geological epoch, the Anthropocene, had commenced. The first International Earth Day took place on March 21, 1970, on the vernal equinox of that year. John McConnell, a newspaper publisher, proposed the idea of a global holiday at a UNESCO conference on the environment in 1969. He chose the vernal equinox, either March 20th or 21st, when night and day are the same lengths everywhere on the Earth, and hoped that people would put aside their differences and recognize their common need to preserve the Earth's resources. Then UN Secretary General Utant signed a proclamation officially establishing the March date as the International Earth Day and made this statement, quote, May there only be peaceful and cheerful Earth Days to come for our beautiful spaceship Earth as it continues to spin and circle in frigid space with its warm and fragile cargo of animate life, end quote. The United Nations celebrates this International Earth Day each year by ringing the peace bell at UN headquarters in New York at the precise moment of the vernal equinox. Here in the United States, we celebrate another Earth Day every April 22nd. This second Earth Day was introduced and organized by U.S. Senator Gaylord Nelson, a Democrat from Wisconsin and environmental activist who held a nationwide day of environmental education and activism on this date in 1970. He wanted to show other politicians that there was widespread public support for a political agenda centered on environmental issues. With some dedicated organizers and volunteer college students, the first Earth Day was hugely successful, sparking Earth Day celebrations and cleanups across the country. After this first Earth Day, Congress passed a number of important environmental laws, including the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act, the Safe Drinking Water Act, wilderness protection legislation, and the Environmental Protection Agency was created. In 1995, Nelson received the Presidential Medal of Freedom from President Bill Clinton for founding Earth Day, raising awareness of environmental issues and nurturing environmental activism. An October 1993 article in American Heritage magazine proclaimed, quote, April 22, 1970 Earth Day was one of the most remarkable happenings in the history of democracy. 20 million people demonstrated their support. American politics and public policy would never be the same again. These two annual Earth Day celebrations hope to raise awareness and inspire people to take personal action. Think globally, act locally has become the Earth Day mantra, but I think we need to act locally every day. We need to think every day is Earth Day. President Biden returned the United States to the Paris Climate Accord on his first day in office, and then he appointed Gavin Schmidt as senior climate advisor to NASA. Make an effort to watch his 2014 TED Talk. Now that we know something big is afoot on our planet, what to do about it? I like to start by thinking that if humans caught the... I like to think... So, now that we know something big is afoot on our planet, what to do about it? I like to start by thinking that if humans cause the problem, humans can fix it. But how do we get humans to care about future generations and all other living things that call Earth home? Nice. Right. Nice piece for Earth Day. Thank you. Yeah. I just good. finished writing it. I know.
<laughs> okay. Thanks, Patty. Okay, you're welcome. listening to Green Street for a while, you know that we've been very involved in working on legislation to ban toxic pesticides in New York City parks. And if you heard the opening of our show today, you know that we're almost there. This Thursday, the day after tomorrow, there will be a ceremony. We don't know where yet for certain, but there will be a ceremony because the city council will be voting to finally ban toxic pesticides in New York City parks. One of the people who helped make this happen was Dr. Kenneth Spaeth. Dr. Spaeth has been a friend of ours for many years, and we wanted to have him on our show today to talk about pesticides, how they impact human health, and why it's so important to ban these chemicals from places like parks where people go to relax and enjoy nature. Here's our interview with Dr. Ken Spaeth. I'll just formally say that I'm Chief of Occupational and Environmental Medicine at Northwell Health, and that has largely meant that, you know, I see patients most of whom have had some kind of exposure to some toxic substance. And a lot of what I do relates to the connection between exposure and health. Mm -hmm. So some folks are coming in because they are quite sick. And as I'm sure many can relate to, sometimes it's not clear what the underlying reasons are for being sick. And questions come up as to whether the illness could be related to uh, toxic exposure. Mm -hmm. Or someone has a toxic exposure and they come in to get an assessment as to what their health issues may be mm -hmm. and what they are at risk for. Um, so that's and, interesting. Um, that's kind of a preemptive thing. Yeah. 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 And to try to, you know, right, be proactive about um, what the potential risks are and, mm -hmm. and therefore try to develop strategies to reduce that risk and, and make sure there's full understanding of, of those risks and how to identify early symptoms and mm -hmm. so forth. Mm -hmm. And then there are folks who have a known exposure and are dealing with serious health issues and the question is, are they related? You know, is, is the current health situation and the health problems related to the exposure that had occurred? So mm -hmm. those are kinds of the scenarios that typically are what you know happening in my clinic and the kinds of patients who are coming in and and in addition you know I, I teach uh, environmental health at Hofstra and I, I help train the toxicologists on environmental exposures and occupational exposures so it's a, a field within medicine and board certified and I was trained in internal medicine first and was doing primary care prior to this and the journey to get to this particular area of expertise like most of our journeys is circuitous and has a lot of different influences and factors along the way but my particular interest in in the health effects of of chemicals and and harmful exposures really goes all the way back to my childhood and, uh, you know, there were uh, a number of recurring themes that carried me and stayed with me, one of which was, you know, as a kid looking at, at food labels and, 
being really confused as to why there were so many things in products that I couldn't recognize, even as a kid. Hmm. So interesting, um, yeah. Yeah, and asking the adults in the room uh, what these were and why they were in there, you know, why a cookie would have so many ingredients with long, complicated, unpronounceable names, and never getting a satisfying answer and always wondering, well, you know, what, what are the implications of this? And similarly, you know, I remember being in the car and driving on the New, New Jersey Turnpike, and there's a strip of highway, um, which I'm sure is known to, to many, but it's around Linden, New Jersey, around exit 13 on the, on the New Jersey Turnpike. Mm -hmm. And it's a very striking stretch of highway because of the industrial presence and the graphic experience one has of the pollutants that are emanating there and, and sort of surround you in, you know, 360 degrees of contaminants, which you can see and even smell and hear. And so it's a very visceral experience. And I, I, re I remember this very early in my life. And the same kinds of questions arose, some of which related to health and, and recognizing even as a child that it certainly couldn't be healthy for people or the earth or any number of ways of looking at it. So those are two. And, and the third I would mention would be that I was visiting my grandparents, my grandfather, who was in a nursing home, and there was a resident in the nursing home who had been a pesticide scientist, and as a result of his research, and his research was in the development of new pesticides, he suffered a severe neurological trauma and was left without full control of his body. Uh, he couldn't control his limbs, his voice, etc. And talking with him when I would visit my grandfather uh, was a very powerful experience and one that stayed with me and, and absolutely influenced my ultimate professional destination, which, which is in the world of the toxic effects of, of chemicals, including pesticides. That's so interesting. We have some very similar experiences as children. I remember we used to drive down from Long Island to visit an uncle who lived in New Jersey. I think it was Red Bank, I'm not sure. And we would go past these refineries, as, as you have just described, um, along the New Jersey Turnpike. And my brother and I would just hold our noses and say, stink farms, stink farms, as right, we went, yeah. as we went mm -hmm. past. But, you know, as we got older, we, we understood that, you know, that this was really, a, you know, a very toxic place. And, uh, you know, hard for anybody to avoid, of course. And imagine people who are living, uh, living in that area that, or that surrounding area where those things are everyday commonplace experiences for them and especially for their bodies, not healthy. So that's really interesting. And also interesting about the, the food labels. Um, you know, my mother was an RN. She was the head of all the uh, operating rooms uh, in London during the Blitz. And uh, she, in nursing school, was taught nutrition as a, you know, a really important part of their learning. And, you know, when they sent people home from the hospital or when they had people that, you know, were very sick, I mean, the most important thing that they went home with was what exactly to eat and what not to eat and how important that was in their healing process. 
Um, sure. So, I mean, I, we always, I lecture a lot on nutrition and I tell everybody just eat foods that have only one ingredient, that have no labels at all. That's what right. you eat. You eat whole food, a whole apple, a whole chicken, or a whole, you know, asparagus spear. <laughs> so it's very, very interesting that you had that background and that it, that it actually stayed with you and you, um, you know, you've moved into a, into a field of medicine that's, that's actually not as, as well populated, I should say, um, as it should be, especially in this world that we live in today. Yeah, it's funny you should say that, because even as I began in medical school, you know, some of these same questions would come up, and most of the physicians really had no answer to a lot of the questions about the health effects, and mm -hmm. I found that very troubling and, disappoint and disappointing. And I was fortunate, and, and I, I, I was able to find this field of medicine, and eventually was able to get the full training and the depth of knowledge and it's hard to imagine, for me, hard to imagine practicing medicine in any other way. And, and one of the interesting things for me about it has always been that, uh, to a great extent, an area of medicine in which the modern world, which we have wrought, you know, that we have created, reflects back on our health and influences our health. And I, I find that particularly interesting and, and compelling to sort of look at it as how these issues are unique to the modern age. Yeah, you know, Many Absolutely. of these issues just didn't exist back even 100 years ago. So it's a very distinctly modern mm. interest. Mm -hmm. I was curious to know how it was when you got to medical school. It's always been our concern that uh, America's medical schools didn't really, you know, teach the kind of basic kind of environmental medicine that every doctor, I would think, should have. H how did you find it when you went to medical school? Well, f for me, you know, I, I, I went to medical school with the belief that, you know, health and understanding health couldn't be restricted to or reduced to just the kind of benchtop science, the biochemical level, or even restricted to the exam room, that there had to be a broader understanding of how society and policy and all of the kind of the real world facets of life influenced our health. And so to make sure that I had some understanding of that as I became a doctor, I jointly did um, a, a master's in public health, mm -hmm. which helped ensure that I could maintain a, a broader focus than than simply what was happening, you know, at the at the individual level. Right. And within that, there is a distinct focus on occupational and environmental health and in toxicology. And in those subjects, and and in learning about those, it really just fueled my interests and opened my eyes to a lot of things that I would not have otherwise been made aware of. And, and these are, you're right, absolutely, there was very little discussion of this in the medical school curriculum itself, and that continues to be the case generally. If you look at the regulatory bodies for, for medical schools, there's very little focus or requirements on environmental health and, and to some degree, public health generally. 
there is some. Of course, in, in recent years, there's been a little bit of a push to include some of these issues, things like climate change and so forth. But the percentage of, of curriculum time spent on that is, you know, very little, uh, less than one percent. Yeah, I mean, exactly. It's, it's tiny. Exactly. And and look, to be fair, there's a lot to learn, and it's it's a, oh, yeah. it's a very demanding field, mm -hmm. uh, and there's a lot of specialties and and areas of interest that for which there's you know turf wars. There's they're vying for for more curriculum time. So, and you can imagine that these kinds of issues end up getting pushed to the side, on, sure. which is really unfortunate. Sure. Well, but you know, I. I, I remember talking to Phil Landrigan um, about this several years ago, and and he just said, you know, when the World Health Organization comes out, I mean, and makes a statement like they did in the year 2000, that um, our biggest public health threat a hundred years ago, which was 1900, was infectious disease, and that now in the year 2000, at the turn of this century, environmentally mediated illness is our biggest public health threat, and yet we do not have. A medical community that knows how to either recognize or manage environmentally mediated illnesses. So that's a you know it, it is a little bit of a tough thing and like you say there's a lot to cover in medical school but it's a big deal. I mean when you have you know pediatricians that know nothing you have kids who are asthmatic who are on medication and you know they spend you know four or five days in the emergency room where their mom takes them you know four or five times during a week they finally wind up in the pediatrician's office and the pediatrician says, you know, well, we're just going to up the medication as opposed to what did you just do in your house? Did you put in a new carpet <laughs> in your child's right. room? Did you right. did you paint their playroom? You know, or, you know, whatever. I mean, there there are lots of questions, simple questions that could be asked that that doctors do not know to ask. But anyway, I don't want sure. to take up too sure. much of your time here. I know that we I know that we want to talk about this impending law that is going to be passed, hopefully, on, on Earth Day. And so let's just talk about how you know groundbreaking this is that New York City is going to now ban chemical pesticides in parks and uh, playing fields and playgrounds, most of the places where parents take their children to play in New York City parks will not right. be not be allowed to be sprayed with pesticides. They will only be able to use biological controls when necessary. So can we talk a little bit about why this is so groundbreaking and why children are so vulnerable and why this is going to make a big difference in, uh, you know, in their health? Absolutely. So this is a, a really a remarkable law uh, and, and will have real, real world ramifications and, and benefits. You know, to begin with, Anytime we can reduce the use of pesticides, we're serving the public good. From a health standpoint, generally speaking, there's no such thing as a pesticide that can be thought of as safe to the extent that, that if any of us are exposed, there's always going to be some amount of risk that results. And while it's true for, for all populations, there are populations subpopulations for whom that's even more true. So, for example, with children, you know, from a physiology standpoint, children are not simply smaller versions of adults. There are fundamental differences in anatomical and, and physiological ways that render kids more vulnerable to toxic harm. 
so you know you can think about this in a lot of different ways um, you know young kids for example behaviorally have distinctive behaviors that that render them more at risk so everything from crawling around uh, crawling means that children are typically going to be closer to the ground or on the floor where more toxic substances can be found and certainly in the in the case of you know parks that's where the herbicides and pesticides are going to end up so contact with with soil um, is more likely to result in increased exposure you know physiologically a lot of the mechanisms that we have as adults that are able to at least to some degree help protect us against the toxic effects are not fully developed in, in children. They don't typically fully develop until, you know, the teen years approaching adulthood. So certainly for um, younger kids, a lot of those mechanisms are, are just not in place. And pound for pound, uh, the same exposure, uh, the same amount of exposure in a child is going to be proportionally more than it would be an adult. So there are a lot of reasons for which children are, are going to be put at greater vulnerability uh, compared to to adults. And obviously, you know, parks really just emphasize that because part of the use of parks is having a place, a green space for, for kids to be able to go and, and explore and, and do all the things that, that kids should be able to do. And to have this uh, specter of pesticides being applied in, in these play spaces is inevitably going to lead to increased exposure and subsequently increased risk of harm. So the fact that this will be reduced and even eliminated is really a remarkable achievement and, and one that, that ought to be celebrated because it will really translate to public health benefits. You're listening to Green Street on WBAI, and our guest this morning is Dr. Kenneth Spaeth, Chief of Occupational and Environmental Medicine at Northwell Health. And we're talking about New York City's proposed new law prohibiting the use of chemical pesticides in all public parks, which we think will be passed on Thursday. We'll be right back. Music for Earth Day from our composer friend, Kerry Beaumont. Our guest this morning on Green Street is Dr. Kenneth Spaeth. He's the Chief of Occupational and Environmental Medicine at Northwell Health. I think it's so hard for many parents to 
to understand the relationship between pesticide exposure and disease because, you know, there's a, a long latency in many of the types of illnesses that we that we see that could be a result of pesticide exposure. Yeah, that's, that's a really important point, Doug. Uh, and I say that because I think for most of us, when we think about any kind of harm from an exposure, we, we tend to think of it in what we would call a acute exposure, meaning, you know, high-level exposure in a very short amount of time. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. you know, if you kind of picture, you probably have seen images of, you know, agriculture workers with big vats of pesticides spraying uh, at high volumes. And certainly, there are significant risks associated with that, and, and we know that, that workers who do that kind of work are are indeed at high risk and tend to be more likely to develop cancers and a lot of the, the effects. And of course, to be subject to the, to the poisoning, the acute exposures from that kind of high dose exposure. And, and certainly that can happen with kids when they, you know, accidentally get access to, you know, under the kitchen sink or wherever else the chemicals, household chemicals can be stored. That sort of thing does happen. But it's not limited to that, and I think that's what you were alluding to. You know, low-level exposures, the kind that most people would probably ignore and not give any additional thought to, are not free of harm. You know, these chemicals accumulate. Uh, Even at low levels, they can exert damage to our health. And because of the ubiquitous nature of how chemicals are used and pesticides in particular, the exposure that we have at such low levels can can occur over very long periods of time. And these do lead to health effects over time. And you're right, there can be a latency, it can take time. And when there's that time factor, the connection can be harder to make. But that doesn't make it less true. Um, it just makes it harder to see. But we have good science on this. We know that long-term exposure and exposure even to low levels can induce uh, health effects and health harm. So, it, you know, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, the the idea that, you know, you're just exposed when you're actually in the park is also not true because you take these pesticides home to your apartments or your or your homes on your shoes or on your clothing. Uh, and then you know you sit on a on a on a chair or you lie on the carpet or you walk around and these pesticides become part of your indoor exposure as well and when you add those to you know pesticides that may be used in the home for pest control um, especially in the city you know we're pretty concerned about this and because we know so little about the synergistic effects of different pesticides I mean what's the difference between you know roach-controlled pesticides and a pesticide, you know, like Roundup that's being used as an herbicide. How do they interact? Do they, are they more, more dangerous um, when, they, you know, when, you, when you are exposed to them together as opposed to individually? Yeah, that's, that's a really important point, Patty. And, you know, most of what we know from a toxicological standpoint about exposure comes from exposures to single, single entities. Mm-hmm. Meaning that if we're trying to understand, you know, what is the health effect of chemical X, we look to studies of chemical X. But in the real world, we are all exposed to multiple chemicals 
all the time. And we really, one of the areas of, of deficiency in public health is our understanding of how these chemicals interact with each other when they're inside our body. You know, there's upwards of 100,000 chemicals in use in the United States. Only a tiny fraction of them have been studied for health effects. You know, there's no requirement that chemicals be studied for their health effects prior to their use. And so we have relatively little knowledge about this. And then, as you're pointing out, when you consider that most of the time our exposures are not single exposures but, to, but multiple and concurrent, it, it really complicates our, our understanding of what the consequences will be. We don't really have good answers to that. But you're right, you know, the herbicide used in the park becomes one exposure and you can then be exposed to other types of, of insecticides that are being applied inside an apartment or in a home. And, you know, the truth is that that is just part of kind of the potentially larger scale of exposures that, that can happen. And that, too, is a consequence of, of life in, in the modern world that, that the chemicals we're exposed to can happen throughout the day and do happen throughout the day. And uh, I'm sure, you know, there's uh, been other discussions about this, whether it's, you know, phthalates or BPA or flame retardants, etc. You know, there's a, a host of these chemicals, and pesticides are certainly notable among those for their potential risks. And you're right, the exposure uh, is not necessarily limited to, to the time in the park. And you know, even having it on the skin, you, you, you know, the longer you have that exposure interface where it's on you or around you, the greater the, the risk of, of intake into the body. Right. And obviously that, that's the concern. You know, I was, uh, I've been thinking about what you were talking about children's unique vulnerability, and I'm just, you know, it's, it's hard not to notice the number of children's cancer hospitals that are being constructed around the country. It just seems like it's a, an epidemic of illness that's happening. And I wonder what we're going to do about this idea that chemicals interact and chemicals get together and they have unforeseen, possibly, ha possibly have unforeseen consequences on people's health. Well, where is the responsibility for, for studying that, and how are we ever going to get to that point? If, if each manufacturer says, well, it's, it's not my product, you know, and if there's not a lot of money available for research, how is it ever going to get done? That's a that's a loaded question, I'm Doug. So, that's so. really we have we need uh, we need an hour and a half for the ad for that uh, yeah, answer. At least, at, at least an hour yeah. and a half. Uh, so I, forget that question. I understand, no, but you know, kids are mostly at risk. That's why I'm really glad about the about the New York City pesticides. Yeah, I mean, well, I the reason that terrific. we got involved actually with this with this whole issue in New York City uh, was because that we helped write the legislation uh, for New York State that actually banned pesticides on all school properties in the state, um, public, private, parochial, K through 12, including daycare centers, but it did not protect New York City's kids. New York City's kids who are more vulnerable just because they live in an urban environment, they have higher asthma rates, blah, blah, blah. They don't get protected at all by this law because they don't have their own playing fields. They don't have their own their own green spaces. They play on New York City parks. 
And right. that's why right. it grabbed me. And I said, we just have to, we have to finish this, right? We have to make sure that New York City's kids are also protected when they're in school and they're playing on playing fields and so on. So that's how we got involved is because, you know, we had thought we had done our job and then we thought, oh boy, New York City's kids who really need this protection, you know, are not getting it. Yeah, it's such a wonderful notion that, you know, every every kid should be entitled to protection from, from chemicals and pesticides in particular. And the extent to which that can be accomplished is worthy of the time and, and effort and energy it takes to do it. So it's really a tremendous accomplishment. Well, you, uh, and, you, you played a role in the hearings, you know, that w- you were a very important piece of it. We, we need white coats, we need doctors, medical doctors to talk about this. Uh, and, you know, we really appreciated your participation in that because, you know, you come with a lot of credibility and, uh, you know, and background in this, and I think it made a difference. Well, thanks. I, I hope so. And uh, again, I, as we talked about many times, I, I'm, I was appreciative to get to be a part of it because I, I believe it both professionally and personally that, that this is the kind of legislation that, that really makes a big impact on our lives. You've been listening to Green Street on WBAI, and our guest this morning has been Dr. Kenneth Spaeth, Chief of Occupational and Environmental Medicine at Northwell Health. And we've been talking about New York City's new law prohibiting the use of chemical pesticides in all 1,700 of our city parks. It's a great gift from the city to the people of New York, and we are very proud to have been part of this effort and delighted to work with such a dedicated group of public officials and activists to get this done. It's not a perfect law. No law is, I suppose. And we had to bend on a few things because I think the Parks Department is a little afraid to go back to the way we used to care for our parks and gardens. But with enough public support, I'm sure they're going to get there eventually. That's going to do it for this Earth Day edition of Green Street. Remember that motto, restore our earth. Return our earth to the way it used to be. Bring back into existence those practices that worked well. And question any new practices or products whose advocates claim they know better than nature. That's a sure sign that they don't and that they lack the fundamental respect for our earth that is required of all of us if we're going to survive as a species. Thanks to our guest, Dr. Kenneth Spaeth, our engineer, Michael G. Haskins, all the people at WBAI who work endlessly and tirelessly so that you can flip on the radio and have this great station to listen to. Make sure you become a member of this station by making your donation today if you haven't already done so. This unique and irreplaceable radio station depends completely on your financial support. Patty and I will be back next week with another edition of Green Street. Until then, please be safe, be well, wear your mask, and... Happy Earth Day.